Hey people, welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible, and that together we can make it happen. I'm Manda Scott, your host at this place on the web where art meets activism, politics meets philosophy, and science meets spirituality, all in the service of conscious evolution. I heard of this week's guest when I was talking to fellow conscious evolutionary Rob Cobbold, friend of the podcast, who said he had been talking to someone who was amongst the most interesting people he had ever spoken to, and he thought they would be a good fit for the podcast. So I went off to explore and discovered that Forrest Landry, at the age of 16, took himself out into the forest with a vow to meet the natural world unaided, not expecting it to come to him, but opening himself insofar as he was able, without expectation, without projection, without ego. And then he came back, and what he had learned there, the meetings that he had had, the work that he had done to make that possible, informed the rest of his life. As you'll hear, he's the son of a woodworker who became a woodworker, and there is no doubt that the forests of his name have had a huge impact on his life. But he went on to become an engineer, a physicist, a mathematician, a metaphysician, someone who, as I understand it, has fed deeply into the work of Daniel Schmachtenberger and the Consilience Project, which remains, insofar as I can tell, the single most inspiring think tank on the planet. So I really wanted to talk to someone who had walked ahead of us in our quest to meet the natural world in ways unencumbered by previous belief systems, and to find out the questions that arise from that, and perhaps some of the answers. So we had a fascinating conversation. And here it is, people of the podcast, please welcome Forrest Landry. So Forrest Landry, thank you so much for getting up at whatever ungodly hour of the morning it is to come and talk to us on Accidental Gods. Good morning. Thank you. And yes, or even good evening, as it is over here. You are, I think, one of the people that I have found most inspiring in terms of your depth and clarity of thinking. And what I'm really hoping on the podcast is that we can begin to explore what are the most important questions of our time, and then how can we ripple out the asking of those at a larger scale than is currently happening. So in order to get there, I'd like us to know a little bit more about Forrest Landry, and in particular, if we can, your experience at 16 that you describe in your TED Talk, which I will put in the show notes, of a commitment to connect to the natural world and how that gave you the questions that then became a platform for some of the rest of your life. So we may have to go back a little bit before that to explain why a 16-year-old would have the capacity to do that and the interest, and the ability. So tell us a little bit about how Forrest Landry came to be who you are now through that. Uh, well, very briefly, um, I grew up in a rural area in Maine, so I was fortunate to have contact with nature from a very early age, basically from when I became aware of myself as a being. Uh, the playground that I had was essentially from the back of the house into the woods for any number of miles. Another thing that uh, definitely contributed to a lot of early exposure 
um, was basically my father is a woodworker. So we would sometimes uh, interact with people who were uh, basically collecting trees to cut into wood, uh, you know, logs and stacking and, and, and processing the, the materials so that it would become available uh, for furniture making. Right. So, so in that sense, you know, there was a, a firsthand experience that would very much connect, you know, seeing the tree in the woods and then also eventually seeing all of the things that would happen uh, in between, um, you know, so there's a lot of contact in that sense. And so I got a real, I, I got a real strong uh, firsthand impression of, of what it was to, to make things and to be creative and to learn the trade of woodworking, but also to, to understand what that meant fully. Yeah. And so in, in that sense, um, you know, there, there, there was always this very strong hands-on aspect. And I think that that's also a key piece. Uh, when you look at the neurology and where our sensory information comes from, as far as the body is concerned, um, our hands have a tremendous number of, of neural connections that, that, that go to them. So essentially the sense of touch is an intensely uh, dynamically connected yes. thing in the brain. I mean, it's like quite a bit of our whole sensory experience of the world comes through our hands. And so in this sense, to work with one's hands in a, in, in, in a craft sort of way, to be engaged with the physics of, you know, saws and, and planers and, and just to really understand how to shape and move things, you know, that's, that's a kind of non-negotiable in a sense, like nature doesn't negotiate. It's going to do what it does. And um, you need to learn how to work with it in that specific sense. So um, I was, uh, you know, both, I think helped from the, the sort of guild background. I mean, there's, there's the educational process, which is the common school system where, you know, there's a teacher at the front and everybody's sitting in desks. And then there's the very hands-on um, guild training, which is essentially you do the work. A customer comes and they want something and, and you, you, you learn how to negotiate what that is. And you then go to the shop and, and, and from the resources you have, you make, you make whatever's needed. And so in that sense, the, the hands-on piece of it, I think gave me uh, a really deep neurological connection yeah. that helped to sort of create a sense of, of immediacy with the natural world. And that this uh, was the context out of which um, I came to really uh, both value and appreciate the, the workings of the natural world. Can I ask a quick question? Two questions, actually. First of all, what did you make? What did you and your father make? Everything? Well, yeah, furniture for the most part. So there's, there's kind of like three grades of woodworking. There's what is known as sort of construction, so things like house building and stuff like that. Um, and then furniture making, which would be tables and chairs and kitchen cabinets, uh, was also uh, you know, one of the more lucrative aspects. Hmm. Uh, and then finally, there's there's sort of the luthier level, which is, you know, making musical instruments. Right. Um, and that is, you know, essentially a really high craft. Okay. And did your name come from that forest? Was it because forests were your livelihood? Well, my mother apparently gave me the name. And um, her, her counting of it was that it was told to her by me when I was in utero. So there you go. Obviously, I don't remember this, but um, she has a somewhat natural orientation herself. Uh, I, I guess you could say a, a little bit of a hippie uh, kind of up, upbringing aspect, although that wasn't really evident very much in, in, in the life that I, I knew of her. So, yeah, the name was a given name, but, but, but the accounting of it is not always so easy to do. That it came from you. I love that. Apparently it did, but who knows? I mean, you know, this is, this is one of those things. It's hard to credit that, although it depends on how deeply you want to get into this whole theory of souls and so on. Yeah, and we can't prove anything, so let's not head down belief systems. Let's move <laughs> instead to 
you as a young man deciding to go out. And it sounds like you said you were going totally raw, totally naked, making 100% of the journey, not expecting nature to come to you, but you going into the natural world to meet whatever was there. Can Is there any of that that you can describe for us? Because obviously it's intensely personal. We don't want to go too deep. But just the the concept of it as a 16-year-old, was it a rite of passage? Did you consider it as such? Well, there's 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 a lot of dimensions to this. So one, one of them is that as I was becoming familiar with woodworking, I knew that there was a discipline to it. So there's a kind of you need to know a little bit of algebra, a little bit of geometry. You want to understand the physics of how things things work. Um, and and because I was a fairly precocious child in a certain sense, I suppose I, uh, you know, I went beyond that. I, I I got very interested in the subjects of mathematics and of physics as a topic and science and so on, and really came to understand and appreciate engineering in a broader sense. So instead of just working on wood, I started thinking about you know shaping metal and what what a machinist mm-hmm. would need to do and and how to think about electronics and what sort of things would be needed to construct and build products and stuff like that. Uh, so my 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 interest in skill set from say uh, twelve to thirteen, fourteen in that area uh, broadened quite quite extensively. Wow. Um, one of the things that, that that was sort of leading into this was is that I, in in a small town, I happened to be in a place where a lot of people would bring things by to to have be repaired. Right. So I was taking things apart and putting things back together again, and um, you know learning how things were made basically. So I came to appreciate very much the uh, the sort of discipline of engineering, you know, that the, the, there's a rigor of mathematics and there's a rigor of, of process that, that allows you to figure stuff out. Um, but on the other side of, of my life, I guess you could say there was this really deep artistic aspect. You see, my mother was a painter. And so, you know, she was very much in the emotional uh, side of things. I guess you could say I had a fairly tumultuous emotional life growing up. Um, and that, uh, in, in a lot of respects, the, the whole depth of feeling and the whole depth of emotion was extremely present and extremely alive. Um, so I, I guess you could say that that, uh, for a variety of reasons, had a certain spiritual or religious impulse, which was quite strong. Uh, one of the things that was also an element of my upbringing was that my parents, for whatever reason, chose not to have me become uh, in, enrolled in any particular ambient religion. So I wasn't made a Catholic. I wasn't mm. made to to join a church or to become part of, of, of something. I was more or less left to my own devices to discover my own way. Yeah. Um, so being a, uh, you know, highly sensitive person and, 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 and deeply involved in the states of feeling associated with that, I found myself at one point asking this question, you know, what, in what ways could we have a similar level of clarity and, um, uh, clear understanding, deep understanding about the nature of how uh, one's innermost self relates to the world, one's feel, basis of feeling, one's basis of spirituality, and the, uh, the kinds of things that, that evolve out of that. So in effect, there was, a, there was there's just this very strong inner experience that kind of gave an extra dimension of experience. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was like, it was like I, I, I could sense things and, and, and kind of be aware of things in, in a way that uh, wouldn't easily be accounted for. Right. And so I was thinking, okay, here is this, uh, these areas where there is a clarity, there's a, there's, there's a sort of um, structural capacity. And I wanted to know what would that be like in an inner sense? What, what would be the interior uh, 
clarity that, that could come and, and, and a sort of structure and what sort of math might work in that space. Um, and so I did, I did a fairly extensive, uh, what would now be called a sort of literature review. I looked at a lot of different spiritual traditions. I looked at a lot of, uh, you know, texts that, that, that were written, you know, kind of in this space. And I came to understand that there really wasn't much that actually had that level of clarity that, that, you know, the, the, the materials in, in a lot of, uh, you know, religious contexts, you know, deep traditions have, you know, amazing depth and, and, and tremendous beauty and such, but you won't find a lot of math, for example, you won't find procedural methodologies. Uh, you know, there, there are meditation practices. So there's, there's, there is, uh, in, in Buddhism, for example, you know, there are practices that, that, that do have a lot of specific uh, detail associated with them, but you, you won't necessarily see, uh, very often or, or, or very much at all, even, um, a connection between an underlying set of principles mm-hmm. and why those practices take the shape that they do. Yes. That detail, that particular piece of information, uh, which is what I was specifically looking for. I was looking very much for what is the bridge between the principles and the practices and how do we understand the principles really well, um, you know, in, in their formalism as well as in their feeling. And so, you know, having clear states of feeling and clear formalisms, but in completely different places, I was like, how do we bring that together? So the upshot was, is that uh, after looking at a lot of books over a long period of time, I eventually came to to recognition that if I wanted this type of material, if I wanted this sort of uh, work to exist in the world, that I would have to myself create that. Like I, I could, I could try to seek to move myself to where the leading edge of research was or I could decide to become the leading edge of research. And since I couldn't identify anywhere in the world where work like this was going on, then I basically said, well, I, if, I, if I really want this, I have to be willing to do what it takes to make that happen. So that's the context in which this vow comes. This, this, is, this is essentially the, the sequence of events that led up to it. And the last piece that sort of makes the, the particular structure of why it took this form is um, if, if you look at a lot of uh, religions that have a sort of deity element in them, like if I really want to understand the deep nature of spirituality and to really get into contact with that sort of uh, sense and experience, you know, there's this notion that if you, if you take steps, like if you do a little bit of work, that, that, that spirit will come and meet you, right? Mm. And that if I take one step towards spirit, that spirit would take, you know, 99 steps towards me. Um, and this is a recurring theme. I mean, you you, you see you see references to this in, in in more than one tradition, and so it's usually treated as a very encouraging thing. You know that spirit wants to meet you, or that nature wants to meet you. That, that to some extent, there's a there's a there's a sort of uh, teleology to this. Mm. Um, but from my experience with physics and my firsthand experience with nature, although I knew nature to be very very accepting, I didn't necessarily uh, feel that it, my sense of uh, teleology was 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 actually an accurate way of thinking about it. That any sense of teleology was essentially a projection. Yes. And so I made it part of my commitment that I wouldn't ask nature to anthropomorphize itself to me in any fashion whatsoever. That I would undertake to be and to become the sort of being that learned its language, the language of nature, the language of spirit, or the language of feeling, and and. And, and emotion and all the dynamics that connect all of these topics together. Um, so there's a sort of uh, mystical element to this, which is uh, not necessarily very easy to put into words, but which was very much the sense that 
in order to genuinely meet that, I have to prepare myself rather than to ask anything to happen outside of myself. So that's the reason why the particular vow takes that particular form, because it's essentially me declaring specifically to myself and for myself that this is essentially the, 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 the sort of fundamental uh, criterion of, of how things after that were going to occur. Good man. So th- this brings up so many questions, but but this, the narrative has its arc. So you made your vow. Did you just walk out of the back door into the woods behind your house? Did you go somewhere where you believed nature might be more raw or more accessible, where where the first peoples had perhaps connected with nature more closely? Because your first peoples are a lot more accessible than ours in the UK. How did you pick a place? Uh, well... <laughs> the, the first peoples, unfortunately, have been displaced from that. I, I, I didn't know of any, I mean, the, the, the language had come through, like, for instance, you know, the Sagatahawk County, right? The, 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 the name itself came from uh, a, a native, uh, you know, language, essentially. But none of the people that lived there were still there. And I, and I didn't know any of them while I was growing up. So I, I had no real sense as to uh, what their philosophy or their belief systems were or their practices or where and in how they might have engaged in the natural environment. But I can tell you that um, as far as my uh, sense of it was concerned, the, the place that I grew up had some, uh, some strength to it. It had some, some real uh, variety of, of, of nature. There were, there were, there happened to be several trees in the, in the immediate area, which were quite, quite old. Um, and in fact, I've never seen anything like them since. I mean, they're not there now. They've, this was quite a while ago, but they still are unique in my experience. And, and I've, I've not necessarily traveled super widely, but I've traveled widely enough to know for sure. Yeah. So it, it wasn't that I had to go anywhere per se. I mean, where I, where I was, was living, you know, out the backyard was 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 certainly adequate. Okay. The the sense of the right place was already sort of established, and the sense of the time. So it was it was evening. It would have been uh, probably around ten thirty or eleven at night. So it was it was dark. You know, it was. I I remember that it was a warm day. I remember that it was, it was somewhat humid, but it was was comfortable. And so you know, to, to the, the the action itself was was again my just sort of being in a place. It just very internally committing myself to that. It wasn't like I, I, I may have sung or or or, or said something at the time, but, yeah. but there wasn't anyone else there, so there, there really wasn't any need for any kind of explicit demonstrativeness. It was, yeah. it was more just a very very clear internal choice, um, and 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 just kind of like making sure that that was something that I would remember and that it was held in mind and that it was held fully and that I was thoroughly checking through all aspects of myself to know that there was alignment behind this. Right. It's a fairly unique thing. It's, it's utterly unique in my experience in a 16-year-old, but in any age, to be able to make that alignment and hold it and step away from the projection and the anthropomorphism that almost inevitably seems to attend our connections with the natural world, unless we put a lot of time into it. I think I've spent the last five decades endeavoring to do what you're just describing that you did at age 16. And I think maybe now when I sit up the hill and watch the sun go down in the evening, which has been my practice for the last, since the new moon of this moon, so we're talking very recently, that I might actually be heading in that direction. So you're you're many, many decades ahead of me, and I thought I was quite committed to this. So I'm 
both impressed and intrigued. And we definitely don't need the detail because it's different for everybody. But you came away from the experience with a sense, I think I understood, of a commitment and alignment of questions that needed to be answered. You came away different than you started. Can you say anything about that, the difference? Well, the, the, the main difference specifically was to, first of all, so, so you mentioned in the beginning clarity and depth. And so the, the, the first thing that I was really doing was attempting to develop the skill of recognizing when I was anthropomorphizing. Right. And that became a, a, a skill of, and, and needed to become a skill of, when I was making assumptions. So the, the, the first real, I think, substantive change was, was a, a, a consistent exercise of noticing when I was making assumptions and then just trying not to make it those assumptions. Um, so, so part of it was, was, was becoming very, very clear, for example, like you, you mentioned the, um, you know, if I, if I had been in a native context, if I had been in an indigenous society that although my experience in contact with nature would be much, much more vivid and much more, uh, in, entangled and, and, and involved, uh, that there would still be cultural precepts of that particular tribe that would inform how I would perceive spirit or or nature or or the 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 powers that be in the sense of natural laws and things like that. And so, in this specific sense, I was uh, really disentangling my own perspective and disentangling all, like in all the things that I had had sort of experienced. It was a willingness to let all of that go. Um, and, and to just keep coming back to what is, what is the directness of the encounter and noticing that as soon as I tried to go into experiencing what is, what I was bringing to that, and then trying to remove that, what I was bringing to it out, um, so that I could again, encounter the, what is, um, and, and so that, that became, uh, for a fair while, uh, you know, sort of this, this, just, just this ongoing process. And so there was inner emotional work that I was doing. There was you know, kind of uh, descriptive stuff I was doing. So I was doing a lot of writing at the time, but I was writing. And then immediately after I, I, I would write something like I'd do stream of consciousness. And then I would go back and I would analyze what I had written to see what was it that were the assumptions behind the thing. And, and so I was using the writing as a vehicle to do detection. I mean, the, the writing itself was of no merit outside of this. So that those are the kinds of kinds of ways in which uh, that showed up in the immediate term. Obviously, I was still trying to live my life and to find my way in the world and, and, and deal with all of the things that, that, that come up in, in, in every person's life. But I was treating all of those events as if they were tools to investigate how anthropomorphization would happen. And where does that lead you? That's, I realize that's a very big and very open question, but it seems to me, okay, we're going to take a step back. When I started this, Accidental Gods, it was as a result of a, a vision at the winter solstice 2018. And part of that vision was of the earth as seen from space and of many, 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 many filaments of light around it. And at each crossing point of all these filaments was a node of consciousness. And some of those nodes were human and most of them were not. But what emerged as the message was that that what I needed to do was take my place as one of those nodes and stop trying to think that I had to solve everything. And in trying to bring that to the world with a, a lot of sitting up the hill, what came was a four-step process of, of reconnecting with the world, of creating an inner clarity, of learning to ask 
questions and hear answers that feel authentic. And the final one was letting go of everything that we believe to be true. So I think I've created this amazing new system and you've you've been there for, I'm guessing, at least five decades. So I'm really interested in where that takes us. If we are able to let go of everything we believe to be true, which is by far the hardest to teach people, because it's because in the end, you even have to let go of the bit that is convinced that it needs to let go. You know, it's a completely circular internal argument. And then, and for me, it feels a very vulnerable space because I don't like uncertainty. I don't like not knowing. I, I want to be able to plan the next moment and becoming that kind of an edge walker where we're actually walking in the moment, being present and asking the question, what do you want to mean? Able to answer or respond in real time. Feels to me where humanity can go and has to go, but you're there. You've been doing this as a conscious practice for, for however long it is. And so, where has it brought you? Well, that's a long story. You're not. You're, you're right about the, the the number of decades. So, um, explaining and summarizing all that's not going to happen in a few minutes. No, but well, let's get to where we are now. We don't necessarily have to go through all of the the ways we got here. But where does it take you now in this moment? Oh, <laughs> that's also a hard question to answer. I, let me let me kind of outline a few of the transitions. Okay. Go for it. The first sort of kind of significant transition was, was again, we can have connection internally. We can have connection with ground, with nature, with the world, and we can have connection with other people. So one of the things that, that became apparent is, as I was, you know, so keep in mind, 16, 17, 18, you know, I'm starting to think about college and, 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 and research and things like that. And so one of the things that, that became apparent to me very early on is, is that I wouldn't necessarily be able to conduct this, this work inside of some academic program. Yeah. Um, if I wanted to apply for a grant, for example, to spend time to work on this, they would want to shape the questions. Yeah. So I had a very clear sense that the politics of that in conversation would shift the questions that were being asked. So I, I explicitly detached from that. I, I basically said, I really need the questions to be free. I, I need to be able to ask the questions that are the right questions to ask, that are the, the deepest possible, the most meaningful possible questions that I can ask without any uh, inhibition on the, 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 the willingness or the ability to do so. So in, in a lot of respects, there was a, there was a very strong move towards independence and towards developing my own tools and developing my own resources in the space, the, the, the exercises and the discovery of the principles and so on and so forth were, uh, you know, in the same sort of way that I was saying, I'm going to make myself into the vehicle. Like, what do I need to do to, to become a person that can ask these questions? What, what do I need to do to become the person that could answer these questions? And so one of the things that I, that I noticed was is that I, I needed to develop my own tools in order to, to essentially embody that. So that, process is, is, is itself something that had uh, a, a real strong series of impacts as to where I am today, for example, because at this point, having gone through, and I, I, there's, there's a bunch of other key transitions that happened after this, but, but having gone through those transitions, uh, I find myself in a, in, a, in a very surreal sort of, sort of sense where, you know, there's, there's been a, there's this arrival of, of having a set of tools, having a set of 
of, of things that resulted from the application of those tools, those, those, those principles and practices have, have reached a level of clarification, a level of depth that, quite frankly, I would not have myself been able to imagine at the time. So, you know, I, I, I used to joke with people in my 30s that if I'd found a time machine or built one, you know, which that's a whole other topic, we could talk about that, that if I had gone back into my past and met myself like right around the time I was, I was, I was 16 and told myself what I now knew to be the case, I would not have believed me. Yes. Right. So in effect, it's like how authoritative a, a piece of information, how, you know, whatever the source of that information is, if it's yourself, right. If it's your own firsthand experience, it's pretty hard to, 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 to deny. So in, in this particular sense, I had had experiences that through my own firsthand experience, and through the complete resources of the most powerful intellectual tools that were available, both in my own work and in the world, right? So, so in effect, you know, when, when we think about what is metaphysics, it's, 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 it's the, there's, there's, there's a few key questions that sort of underlie the topic. Um, one of the questions is, is what is? Another question is, how do we know? Um, and, and, and those two, you know, of course, are, are given labels. Right? The first one's ontology, and the second one's epistemology. Um, there's also this thing called axiology, which has to do with value, and I'll, I'll come back to that some other point, too. But the idea here is, is that when we look at, you know, how we receive information and what ways we use to validate that information for that kind of uh, dynamic, you know, when I look at the tools that we use to, 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 to know something, or to, to have some idea, the very strongest and the most complete set of those tools, it's, it's on one hand, it validates the content, but at the same time, it is the basis for those tools themselves. Okay. There's this intense interaction at that particular level. In fact, I'm, I'm describing the very foundation of knowing itself. So, um, you know, you, you, you can look at early philosophers, for example, like, uh, I mentioned Descartes in this context. He had this program that he would take as true anything that he could not even in principle have doubt about. Hmm. And so we arrive at, you know, through this this sort of exercise of, well, I'm going to imagine that there's this demon that's got complete capacity to deceive. He can reach into my own mind and, and change even the way I think. So what I perceive could be completely illusionary because it's projected into, into my imagination. And, you know, after an exercise of, of, of really like taking that as a, as a basis, you, you, you come to sort of, well, I think therefore I am. That's one thing I can know. And so that's, that it's impossible for that to be a deception because anything that's, 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 that, that's as nuclear as it gets, basically. And so in, in, in a certain sense, when we're, when we're looking at this sort of construct, I, I, one of the things that came out of this, this sort of work on my part was is that, well, anything that's intrinsic to the process of doubt can't be doubted. Okay. Anything that's intrinsic to the nature of process, period, not just the process of doubt, because doubt is a process, the same way that perception is a process. So anything that's intrinsic to the nature of perception, or the nature of comparison, or the nature of, of observation, right, even communication, is going to be truly primal. And the basis for the, the, the notion of knowing at all, because in order for there to be knowing and, and remembrance, there has to have somehow been experienced, some sort of perception. So there, 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 were, there was arrived at this incredibly profound, incredibly deep, uh, you know, nuclear, subnuclear 
uh, understanding of the relationships between these concepts as being intrinsic, as being indelible, as being like unalterable. Um, and at the same time, so you, you, you get the sense of, okay, this is clearly right. This is, this is for whatever meaning we assign to the word truth, that this is clearly true okay. and it, in the sort of capital T absolute sense. And at the same time, because of this social disconnection that I, that I mentioned earlier that enabled all of this to happen, it's actually quite hard to communicate this to other people mm -hmm. because they're coming from within their own mindset, their own anthropological context. And so on one hand, you can have this notion that what you're holding is intensely meaningful, intensely valuable, is, 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 is ultimate in some sense. But in the context of the social world, in the context of things that are not nature or not self, it's literally impossible to communicate at, at that level of depth. So um, this just basically means that you know, your experience is surreal because you have this infinite value on in one sense and zero value on the other. Um, and, and, and you are constantly experiencing that. So, so, so you have, on one hand, it's kind of delightful, right? I mean, this, the, the sense of the surrealness is, is, uh, is, 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 is certainly humorous, but at the same time, it's, it, it just never goes away. Right? Yes. <laughs> so, so if you're asking about, you know, what is my current experience like? Well, that's largely, uh, the character of it. Um, you know, and, in, in a sense, the, you know, the subsequent transitions led to ideas that could clearly be relevant at a, at a civilization scale over over yes. millennia. Yes. Um, and so we we get this deep sense of okay, the world has troubles. Like it, it's the, you know we have our environmental issues. There's pollution issues. There's cultural issues, and, and 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 all sorts of things that are that are happening as side effects of 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 the use of technology, the the, the marketplace processes, the social dynamics of, of how we've evolved to be and so on. And so in effect, there's this sense that these tools aren't just meaningful, but actually necessary and vitally important to the world at, at large. Um, but in order to explain how that feels, you know, on one hand, you have this sort of de-egoic sense, right? Because as you mentioned, at a certain point, you have to let go of even the notion of self in order to have contact in, 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 in this, like the yes. people ask me about free will and choice from time to time. And I, and I basically say, well, it's more correct that rather than thinking about selves as having choices, that it's more correct to think of choices as having selves. That, okay. That feels, that feels like possibly a whole other podcast. I can, because that is really, really interesting, but I would really like it to bring us back to what you said just before that, we are in, you know, we're in the middle of the sixth mass extinction. We're hurtling towards a cliff edge. There's a, a wonderful author who I'm sure you know, Cory Doctorow. Have you read his work? Right. And I listened to him recently, and his metaphor was, we are all in the back seats of a bus, which is being driven faster and faster to the edge of the cliff by someone who is holding the wheel and is determined not to turn it. And which is, feels very accurate. And it feels to me as if you have the tools to persuade the people who are holding the wheel to turn it. Uh, yes. I, I don't know that persuade would be the right word. I think to some extent what, I, what I'm doing is, is I'm building an aircraft, <laughs> trying to attach it to the top of the bus. <laughs> so even if they go off the cliff, it's okay. <laughs> we want some wings. We want them right now. And if we could turn the bus, that would be much better. If we can make the engine stop, that would be great. You know, there's all sorts of remediations, but at the very least, we have to make sure that one of these things happens. 
Yes, yes, exactly. And so how do we do that? You said at one point that um, we need to upgrade our capacity to imagine, which um, which I love because it seems to me that all of the people crowded in the back of the bus with us, the ones for whom we still have language but not communication, part of it is that we are storied beings as well as everything else. And if we don't have a story that takes us forward, if all we can see is either more of the same or the bus going over the edge of the cliff, which is endlessly iterated for us and, you know, our modern media is very good at describing how bad things could be. And no one, as far as I can tell, is busy working out how things could be if we managed to get the bus you know, into the air or any of the other metaphors we just used. So how do we do this, you and I, and the people who are in this ecosystem, which is not in the majority yet? How do we, how do we ripple out the better capacity to imagine? Well, I think, you know, when you, when you said there isn't uh, imagination of what it could be, I, I actually came across this uh, cultural phenomenon called solar punk. Um, there's steampunk and then there's solar punk, right? So in effect, there's a, there, there, there are some artists and um, people who are uh, starting to really ask the question, what would the alternative narrative be? Can we imagine a future that integrates nature and humanity and and you know, really work out the dynamics of, of, of rather than having marketplaces that we have, yeah. you know, rather than economy that we have ecology. Yeah. And so in effect, there's a, uh, there, there, there is a series of, of, of at least at this particular point, kind of, uh, awarenesses and, 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 and sort of metaphoric dreams that, that, that look in that direction that basically establish, okay, what can we imagine as a hopeful future? What would that look like? And how would we experience that? Mm. Um, and and so you know, just incidentally, on 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 mflb.com, I just recently put up like one of the most. Uh, it might even be the last article I just put up there. Uh, was you know, there's there's an article on the internet called the Solar Punk Manifesto, and so I says, well, th- these are all questions, and so I took and I wrote the questions that are associated with the with the manifesto, which are largely the the questions that you just asked, which are, you know, how do we do this, and what are the kinds of things that we need to uh, imagine and what sort of directions do we need to work in? So um, that might be worth looking at, right? Because again, there's a series of questions there. Not, that's not a complete set of questions. Mm. Uh, it just happened to be the ones that connect to this uh, sort of movement for constructing narratives that would help people to basically say, yes, this is a realizable future. Yes, there is a way for us to think about this. Um, but I myself, I, I'm, I'm not personally oriented around narrative that much. I, I basically go for the questions and start to think about, you know, what are the tools that we need to answer these questions? And that gets back into a lot of the work. Okay. So what are, what are the tools that we need to answer these questions then? So as, as you mentioned, the, the, the capacity to increase the flexibility of imagination is largely going to come out of the kinds of interactions we have with that narrative. So in other words, there's, there's, there's the the people that create narrative and then there's essentially our uh, understanding of, what are the things that come up as questions when people uh, engage with that narrative? So you ask a lot of how questions, but somewhere along the way, we need to sort of think about the why and the what, hmm. right? Because if, if, if we don't really know the, the deep nature of what is in terms of you know, what's possible to do either with technology and what, what, what principles uh, you know, are informing that, but also who are we when we're doing it? So, for instance, if I'm going to move from a place of, you know, having language to 
being in communion, being in communication, then, you know, there's, there's a skillfulness that wants to come with that, but that skillfulness might not have been provided by evolution. And we might have ourselves in, 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 our, in our current embodiment a lot of things that, that evolution prepared us for, but wouldn't necessarily have prepared us for how to deal with all this technology. So to some extent, there's, a, there's an imagination component, and then there's also a, uh, a sort of right reasoning component. And that itself has to come from a, from a values component, you know, what's sacred. So... In, in my work, I, I tend to think about things from the point of view of governance, but that's because it's it's in, in the intermediation between value systems, what we would normally think of as maybe religious or spiritual impulses, hmm. and what would be marketplaces like the see and touch ordinary reality that, that that all of us inhabit. And so, when we're when we're thinking about you know how do we translate values into the kinds of policies that would uh, result in good education that would help people to develop these skills or create the kinds of contexts in which the social interactions allow for the emergence of cultures, which allow for the emergence of these narratives, which allow for the emergence of new capacities of imagination. Yes. Right. So it's, it's not just about constraining the marketplace so that it doesn't go off the rails and make pollution and, you know, existential risk that'll get us all killed and so on. It's the, it's the notion that if we understand ourselves well enough and we understand if we genuinely inhabit and imbibe the value systems deeply enough, clearly enough, then from that intersection, we can start to come up with clear plans about how to actually get from here to there and also to know specifically what there is. So, you know, in, in, in terms of my own um, description of this, the how is about the transition. How do we, like if we're making a bridge, the how would be how do we build the bridge? But the what would be essentially, where is the bridge going? Where's the island or the other continent or the, the, the footings that the other side of the bridge is going to land on? So having a clear vision about uh, what does a healthy future look like? What does a thriving uh, humanity look like? So I'm not just saying thriving you know, economy. I'm, I'm basically saying thriving humanity, right? If you think about you know, what is the function of government in, in a classical sense, it's to protect the land and the people. Hmm. And even that ordering is important. The land is first, the people second. Yes. If you don't protect the land, there's no future for the people. Yes. So it's not just a thriving humanity, it's a thriving web of life. Exactly. Right. And to go beyond just protection, but but to actually creating the conditions for which that thriving can actually occur, which itself is a is is dependent upon a, a series of principles, a, a kind of why. So in other words, if we if we know a lot about what went wrong to get us here, but also what went right. Yeah. It's still going on. That's right now, right? There's, there's, there's a lot of things that technology has been very good for, and there's a lot of things that humanity has has gotten better at. I mean, you know, if you look at it right now, we're in a relative calm. There's, there's fewer wars. There's, there's less poverty. I mean, there's still a lot of it out there, and so on. But, but, but overall, the, the conditions for people has generally improved, not completely, but in many cases. If I were to go back to the Middle Ages. Hmm. You know, people living in suburbia still have a higher quality of life than maybe a king did in the Middle Ages. You know, as far as medicine and as far as you know, just just overall uh, possibilities and, and, and interactions and such. So, in effect, when we're when we're looking at the how do we do this, we want to know that that footing, it's the place that we're reaching to, is actually going to be 
solid that it's that it's going to hold the weight of all of civilization and all the designs that we that we would put on it that, that it's that it's not just that oh we can imagine some future but that, that imagining isn't pollyanna it isn't mm. some utopian dream that, that, that can't possibly be realized it's grounded in clear understanding of deep concepts that the hope itself comes from a space of knowing that, that we can basically say, yeah, this is a realizable future. This isn't actually something that is impossible to do. It's something that's very possible to do and being possible. We want to make it more likely. Yes. Right. Cause if that, if that bus is going off the cliff, that's currently the most likely scenario. So we need to make the positive future more likely. And to do that, we have to some extent have a real understanding of ourselves as a species. And we have to get that quite fast because there is a time constraint. You know, the bus is accelerated and the cliff edge is quite close. We haven't got three or four generations to do this. Right. It's This is our generation needs to do this. Right. And I love that you say it's not Pollyanna. I've been writing with some friends a television script endeavoring to do just what you're saying. And I go and talk to television people and I say, you know, we need to do exactly what you said. We need to work forward to a future where everything thrives. And they go, don't you think that'll be a bit Pollyanna? It won't, it won't quite have the, the narrative drive and the, you know, the thriller sense that we really need for television in the 21st century. Well, now they're coming from a marketing point of view. And you see, this is where <laughs> when we notice, what are the things yeah. that are and this, you know, the, the, they're thinking from a marketplace orientation, right? Which is basically still in the, uh, you know, the, the notion of success is now going to be defined in terms of the, the degree of penetration into the, I mean, just think of the metaphors that are coming up here, right? Yeah. And so, in effect, there's a, there, there's a sense here of, you know, really noticing that, by the way, the market factors are themselves driven by, you know, obviously greed and lust and all that kind of stuff. But you know, in effect, there's a there's a need for us to step back from from being driven by those kinds of things. Um, you know, we 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 want to to have conscientiousness in terms of our interactions. Yes. Um, which which basically means, to some extent, noticing what's happening while it's happening. Yes, and yet still making something that everybody wants to watch because making a, a tiny little niche program that that eight people and their mothers watch because they were all involved in it isn't going to be useful. So up to a point, they're right. I, I I don't think that looking forward to a future where we might all thrive is necessarily going to be skipping through the tulips. I think it's, it's going to be hard and there's going to be quite a lot of hurdles on the way and the bus might teeter on the edge of the cliff. I remember, do you remember when we were kids, um, the Italian job? I vaguely remember that. Yeah. It's a, a British film, and there's gold at the end of the bus that's off the edge of the cliff, and all the guys are on the edge that's still on the edge of the cliff. And if they move right. towards the gold, it is definitely going over. And the last line of the film is him going, hang on, guys, I've got a really good idea. <laughs> and then it cuts, and that's it, and you never know what the idea was. And it feels to me like we're we're very close to that bit where we're on the seesaw, and the gold is all at one end, and we're all at the other. And so, yes, we need the how and the what and the why. Insofar as you understand it at the moment, what does a thriving humanity and web of life look like? What is the what? Uh, <laughs> that question is broad. I, 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 could we make it a little more specific? I, I mean, I, I, I can talk about things in terms of different structural layers. Like, for instance, you know, we have uh, what we think of as the economy, and it rests on infrastructure, and the infrastructure is created out of what the cultural ideas are. The cultural ideas come from essentially our internal structure of, of ourselves as biological beings, right? So, so you know, partitioning that is is a thing. Then, then we can talk it's, about it's a whole other it's a whole podcast. other podcast. I mean, I, I but 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 there's so many layers. For example, 
if I were to, to, to talk about, you know, the relationship between man, machine and nature, yes. then I can get to a little bit more of a, of a nuanced perspective of it, but it isn't necessarily going to be something people will relate to. So for example, right now we tend to assume that nature serves man because we extract from nature and we attend, we, we build machines and we think that these machines are to serve man because, you know, they, we built them for us, but mostly they serve the corporations. So they serve the few at the expense of the many. And the interaction between machines and nature is just extractionary itself, right? To, to sort of support the extraction process. A much healthier way to think about this would be that man supports machine to support nature. So we don't think of machinery as being for us. We think of all of the causation, all of the, the, the dynamics of computers and the internet and all the rest of that sort of stuff as not being for our sake, as being the means by which we heal the ecosystem, which we create thriving, which we create prosperity, not human prosperity, but ecosystem prosperity. It's clearly the case. I mean, the thing that makes it going off the cliff is that, you know, if the ecosystem crumbles, you know, our capacity to make food for ourselves is, 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 is diminished, right? And, and, and the, the capacity to find all the things that basically make our lives meaningful uh, is in the context of the natural world. And if the natural world's gone, the meaning of our lives just becomes empty. So in a sense, there's a very strong uh, reorientation of who does it serve? Who does technology serve? And it's not that it serves a who, it's a serves a what. It serves nature. So in effect, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit like uh, our whole expectation as to what is the function of communication, what is what is the function of technology, uh, wants to reorient so that the cycle of life is preserved in a larger way. This arises then from a value system. Yeah. We need a common value system, which at the moment I would suggest we don't all have. There isn't a common human value system. Well, there is and there isn't. You see, so so one of the things, so this goes back to the accident of unconsciousness. So that, that TED talk was essentially my uh, attempt to respond to this question. If we take traditional economic notions of value and we, we use that to assess, you know, the total value of, of, of all transactions that are happening in a given year over the entire planet, like literally every market transaction, every debt exchange, all of that stuff, it's, you know, roughly speaking, somewhere in the neighborhood of around $350 trillion dollars per annum of global economic activity. But if we if we use that same notion of value in the context of the whole universe, right, all, all that is that, 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 that we have any capacity to, to even be aware of at all, um, then the actual economic value of this planet and all of the things that are on it and the total value of life is something like one quadrillion quadrillion dollars. <laughs> That's a lot of So... You know, 350 trillion isn't even a rounding error in that context, right? Like a quadrillion dollars is, is, you know, a single quadrillion dollars would be, you know, roughly of the same order of magnitude as, you know, a, a, a thousand trillion dollars, right? So hang on, a quadrillion is 10 to the power 12? And so a quadrillion quadrillion is 10 to the power 144? Basically, yeah. Uh, it would be, it's, 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 it would be, you, you add the powers together, so it'd be 24, you know, and, and this, again, these are approximations, but even if we were off by 12 orders of magnitude, it would still be enormous, right? So, um, 
you know, and, and, and we're certainly not more than two orders of magnitude off on either of these metrics. So there is at least at a minimum eight to 10 orders of magnitude separating the actual value of life on earth taken as a totality in the context of the truth, which is the universe's truth, right? I mean, that's, that's as far as, as, as like, there is something that is an isness. So, so, so relative to the context of all isness, the value of, of life on earth is enormous. And, you know, our current assessments of economic value are so far off base that to some extent that, 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 that it isn't even a question We're we're basically making really, really poor choices. So, in, in, in this sense, you know, if we're looking at, you know, what is the common value system? Well, the value of your life, the life of every family that you've ever been a part of or that you know of or that has ever lived and could ever live from this point onwards, including the value of all your livestock, every blade of grass, every bug and microbe uh, over the entire surface of the world is a common value. I mean, if, if the notion of meaningfulness is going to have any grounding at all, if the notion of value and purpose is going to have any grounding at all, somewhere along the way, it's going to come down to these sort of levels. Hmm. And so, you know, I don't necessarily think that this is conscious in a lot of people, but it's certainly embodied because of the very fact of having a body is, is, is to some extent already to acknowledge. So in, in this particular sense, I, I, I would suggest that it, to the degree that we can become at least a little bit more aware of the actual genuine value of the totality of all life. And the more that we make choices on that basis, the deeper the alignments are going to be and the easier it's going to be to make good choices. Okay. All righty. There's so much in that I would like to unpick, but I am aware that we're running out of time. So just as we're closing, I have heard you speak about choice and the making of good choices and omni-win choices. Because it's, it is all down to choice. It's down to our individual choice and then it's down to our collective choice. We can choose not to go off the edge of the cliff or we can choose just to carry on as we are. And I've heard you say that the win-win, the omni-win choices feed into each other. You make one win-win choice and it feeds into the next and it becomes easier and easier. Can you say a little bit about how people listening can orient themselves towards the sense of a win-win choice at every moment of their living? Well, again, it becomes a sort of practice, right? So the principle is that there's always a win-win choice. If you take that principle seriously, and of course, there's ways to understand that, and there's a theory of ethics that underlies that, and the theory of ethics comes from a set of axioms which themselves have a bunch of implications. But if we ignore all of the intellectual stuff, and we basically say, how do I make a choice that's the most win-win? If I, first of all, take the intellectual stuff as, as providing the principle, and I have the notion that there is a win-win choice, then the question becomes, can I imagine it? Now, so I'm, I'm presented with a certain circumstance, and, and, and so I'm going to be aware of some possibilities, right? I, I'll probably say, okay, well, I can do X, I can do Y, I can do Z. Can I add to that list? So, for instance, for whatever the possibilities are, if I, if I look at the options that are available and I notice that each of those options has certain trade-offs, then I've become aware of what the trade-offs are. I've become aware of the various things that are in, in play as far as that choice is concerned. I've become aware of, therefore, the things that are valuable or the things that are important or the things that I want to account for. So now I have a sense as to what OmniWin means. Because if I didn't ask the question about, you know, what are the trade-offs involved with the options that I believe that I have, then I haven't learned the language of the problem well enough to know what it is I'm actually trying to solve. I want to learn myself what the language is so that if a solution were to be imagined that I would recognize it as a solution. 
So to some extent, we do need to encounter the problem at least well enough to learn its language so that we can therefore embody the solution through recognition. So that's, that's kind of the first part. So believe that a win-win solution exists, then study the, the, the solutions that you have to try to understand the interplay between the things, learn the language of the, of the situation, then use that language as a vehicle to try to construct new options, new solutions. And then from that, iterate, right? So over time, you will have been um, you know, increasing your capacity to imagine solutions that are win-win. If you run out of time, if you need to make a choice in some finite period of time, then, you know, obviously pick the one that's the most win-win. Hmm. But as you encounter future choices from that point, because every choice will lead to consequences and those consequences will, will have changes occur that create new possibilities that will result in new choices. So in effect, there's a sense by which as we get better at going through the exercise of of, of noticing what win-win even means, hmm that we become more effective at imagining what win-win looks like, what it feels like, how, how it would yeah. possibly be. And we increase our capacity to choose that thing that we can now imagine. Again, because of the development of skill, seeking to do this in, in, in each case. And, and again, this is, a, this is an ongoing process that will take time. But on the other hand, it pays dividends because as we develop choices that are just better, um, the overall situation improves, our wealth increases, our capacity for happiness increases, and so on. And for those who are saying, well, you suggested it as a belief, I'd say, well, no, actually, it's a theorem, and <laughs> here's how we can understand this to be true. Then we can get into the depths of that. But that takes some time, obviously. Yes, we might, if you ever have the time, come back for a second podcast. But at the moment, I think that's, yeah, a pretty good place to end. With the addition that so win-win, for those not familiar with the language, is making any decision based on on no harm being created and, in fact, treating others as you would wish to be treated and creating at every choice the maximum capacity for both parties in any negotiation to come off as well as possible. Is that a fair assumption of what win-win means? It is. There's There's ways to open it even wider than that. So in other words, I'm making choices now to open up the possibility of both my future choices and the future choices of all that are involved. And that I'm, I'm really paying attention to not just the actuality of what happens, but the potentialities that come from that. Yes. All right. And my limited experience of practicing this is that the actual energetic feel of my body changes that I'm not working out of a position of of pushing against and of fearfulness and of retraction, but I'm working from a position that feels more authentic, that feels like I have more agency, and that feels as if I am moving with more flow. Is that your experience also? Yeah, it's, it's basically being discerning, right? So in other words, noticing when the context is one of reflective inquiry. Like if, if, if people are working together, like you and I are, are sort of exploring these things. And so we're standing side by side, asking questions, trying to figure stuff out. So, so to some extent, you know, be, be discerning about the context such that we can move it from uh, social advocacy, which is what a lot of people's conversations are currently, to ones of reflective inquiry. It's basically like, well, I hear that you value this thing. I hear that this is important to you. Can we explore the depths of that importance? Can we find a way? to really move into that space that that everybody basically comes away from this feeling really good. Yeah. And not just that it looks good or that it feels good, but that it is actually a good choice. 
Um, and, and, and so, you know, there are a lot of people that are really quite frankly depressed and, and haven't had the hope that that's possible. In fact, you know, if you take science and, and uh, technology as being quote unquote, the ground truth of the world, then, then even the notion of choice itself doesn't seem realistic. Um, whereas in, in this particular sense, I would say that the notion of the real is actually uh, bound to the notion of choice just as much as is bound to the notion of change and causation. Hmm. And that in this sort of recognition, the notion of ethics becomes a real topic and the notion of good choice becomes a real topic. And that we are, therefore, if we're going to embody uh, a sense of divinity, a sense of enlightenment or, or, or the good qualities of what it is to, to have a meaningful life, uh, that, that we will seek then to uh, you know, manifest that, not just in ourselves, but in everything around us as well. Magic. That feels like an extremely good place to end. Fantastic. All right. In that case, Forrest Landry, thank you so much for coming on to the Accidental Gods podcast. Many blessings. Good to be here. Thank you. And that's it for another week. Huge thanks to Forrest for the depth and clarity of his thinking, for the places that he has gone and the trails he has blazed, and the possibility of the hope that arises from them. Because we all have choices, we all make decisions all day, every day. And if we can reach that win-win place where we open up the potentiality for other people, if we can bring humanity and machines and the natural world into a space where we are working to make the thriving of the natural world greater, not lesser, then I think that the bus teetering on the edge of a cliff has a chance of not going over the edge. And that's what we're here for. You and I, accidental gods, all of us. So I will put in the show notes all of the connections to Forest that I have. And if you want to come and find us, we're at accidentalgods.life. You'll find the other podcasts there, show notes for this and all of the others, and ways to join in with the membership program if you want our way of connecting to the natural world and learning to ask the questions that matter and practicing what it is to let go of everything that we believe to be true so that we're not hampered by our own projections. We will be back next week with another conversation. In the meantime, huge thanks as ever to Caro C for the sound production and the music at the head and foot. Thanks to Faith Tillery for the website and the tech. And thanks to you for listening. If you know of anybody else who would like to be part of the generative dance of the world, then please do send them this link. And that's it for now. See you next week. Thank you. And goodbye.